And let's take our Bibles and let's open them to the book of Isaiah as we continue our journey through his uh, letter here, his book of prophecy. We're going to look at the 50th chapter today, uh, all 11 verses in a message that I have entitled, The Servant's Submission, The Servant's Submission. So with that, let's stand to our feet, you guys. Let's stretch it out one more time and let's take our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we just, it's our honor to come before you. We, we humble our hearts before you, God, and we uh, lift the praise of our hearts to you. And God, we desire to be found well-pleasing to you. And so to that end, we would pray, God, would you please pour out your spirit? Would you please give us ears to hear you, meaning a will that is ready and eager to respond appropriately to you? Edify this body, Lord. Glorify yourself. And if there's any here today, Lord, who perchance does not, they don't know you, uh, that they would come to know you, God, by the time we're finished here. Uh, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Have a seat there, folks. By way of reminder, God has made a promise to the nation of Israel. It's there, if you want to just look back just a little bit, uh, it is there in the 25th verse of the 49th chapter. He says, I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. There will be, contrary to the desire of Hamas, Hezbollah, you know, Iran, any number of Islamic nations, or really many people around the world today, there will be no elimination, no eradication of the nation of Israel. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God promises the salvation of their children. He underscores it again in verse 26 of chapter 49, and there he makes the declaration, all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Uh, but Ladies and gentlemen, at the risk of being overly rhymy, if you'll allow me, that doesn't mean there are no ramifications for their sins. No one gets a what we might call a free pass in life. If we sow to the wind, we will reap the whirlwind. But God's discipline does not diminish His love for us in any way. In reality, it's because He loves us that He disciplines us and seeks to root out the wicked ways, the sinful tendencies that are found within us. In the book of Hebrews, we read it like this. My son, do not despise the chastening, the disciplining of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves. He chastens and scourges, again, disciplines, we might say, you know, takes the old paddle or whatever the case may be, to every son whom he receives. Now, I say all that to say this. We're coming into a context whereby the nation of Israel is, well, they're going to feel forsaken of God, forgotten of God. They're going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And while they are there, the temptation will be uh, to feel completely abandoned by God. But God reminds them in an incredibly endearing way that that's never going to happen. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? He says, look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, pointing undoubtedly to the greatest demonstration of love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, went to the cross on behalf of us. Listen, 
When you are feeling forsaken by God, uh, tough times make you wonder if perhaps you've been forgotten by God. Uh, Maybe he's overlooked you. Maybe he's abandoned you. Look no further than the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ready reminder of God's love for you that he will never leave nor forsake you. And so it's with these things in mind that we turn our attention, look at the very first verse of the 50th chapter, the book of Isaiah, where thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? We're going to stop right there, and I'm just going to say, I hope here you get the gist. Uh, God is making it clear in no uncertain terms. The problem isn't on my end. It's on your end. You're saying, again, you'd have to go back to chapter 49 to get the full orb of what's being said here. But you're saying, I've forsaken you. I've forgotten you. When the fact of the matter is that you've forsaken me, you've forgotten me. Now, as you know, God regarded himself as married uh, in a marriage relationship to the nation of Israel in that he was their God. They were his people, but they were unfaithful to God through idolatry in their lives. And God had provided in the law, law of Moses, a means by which a man could divorce his wife. This is what it reads. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and then, of course, it goes on and has some additional instructions that follow, but the specific statement is, He finds some uncleanness in her, writes her a certificate of divorce. Look, I'm kind of done. This relationship is over. And uh, he puts it in her hand. He sends sends her out of his house. Now, those two words that I underlined for you, if you want to bring them back up real quick, uh, those two words that I underlined for you, some uncleanness, became over the centuries the subject of much debate. I mean, what does this mean, some uncleanness? Is this a reference to the fact maybe that she wasn't a virgin when you were married or that maybe she cheated on you, committed adultery on you? Or is this a character reference? She's slandering you. She's insulting you. She's always being hateful to you. Does it mean you don't appreciate the way she cooks your food? You know, she burns your toast or something. Uh, and, And I'm telling you guys, it got crazy. And the divorce rate in ancient Israel, much like in modern day America, was becoming a problem of epidemic proportions. And this is why Jesus brought clarity to the issue at hand. Now, if you want to write it down so you can research it later, it's found in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19. And there you will find the Pharisees coming to him. They're asking of him. They're saying, listen, is it lawful? The idea is, is it justifiable to uh, divorce a, a woman for just any reason? And Jesus told them, listen, In the beginning, God didn't make them 
male and females. Do you understand what I'm saying? He didn't create multiple options for Adam. It was one woman for one man for life. This is God's original intent. Now they were all, well, why then did Moses command to give a woman a certificate of divorce? And Jesus was like, listen, Moses didn't command anything of the sort. He permitted it because of the hardness of your heart. Meaning, you could not find it in your heart to work toward reconciliation because your heart is bitter and unforgiving. And so God made this exception for you. And he explained what the exception was. And he said uh, that the exception was sexual immorality. That's the one area that God will make an exception for. Now, later on, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul the Apostle exposited, explained a little bit more in the book of Corinthians, and he said that if you are a believer, and uh, let's say you got married, you, you and your spouse got married, you were both unbelievers at the time, uh, somewhere down the line, uh, one of you became a believer, and then the unbelieving spouse says, look, I'm not having it, I'm done with this, I don't like the, the stress, the tension, we're not in the same place anymore, and the unbeliever departs. He says, well, in a situation like that, uh, you're free as well. You know, if they, if they leave, they leave. There's nothing you can do about that. But this notion that you could just divorce your wife for any reason, you know, you didn't wait, like the way she looked at you or something, didn't like the way she cooked for you or something. Maybe you guys were just kind of struggling, didn't always get along or whatever the case may be. Uh, this was never in the heart of God. Just leave her if you don't like her. That was never in the heart of God, okay? Having said that, in our present passage, though it were true that the nation of Judah had cheated on God through idolatry, he could have put them away justifiably. He says, where is your certificate of divorce? Look, if you claim that I've put you away, uh, provide the document. Where is it? Well, they couldn't provide it because he hadn't put them away. It's the same principle with this servitude reference. If you think I've abandoned you, you think I've sold you off as if to take care of some kind of debt, then let's go. Provide the proof. Guys, What's happening is they're making excuses. You need to see this. They're playing the blame game for the situation they've gotten themselves into. Now, this is common for people to do, isn't it? But God's not having any of it. He's not doing this. You're not going to blame me for the situation for which you have brought upon yourself. And this is uh, what seems to me to be in view here um, let's see, actually it's in verse two. Let's, let's carry on. For which of my creditors uh, is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves and for your transgression your mother has been put away. Why notice when I came was there no man and why was it when I called there was none to answer? So you see it's this blame game. You're blaming me for a situation you've gotten yourself into and that's what he means when he says where, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Now, you remember, perhaps, if you don't, you can 
You'll see the scripture reference. You can write it down and do your research. And I always encourage you to do that. I realize that sometimes I say, now you remember, or yeah, you recall. And then I will begin to articulate a scenario. And you're like, I don't recall this at all. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, man. And uh, you're making me feel dumb. That's not my goal. My goal is to encourage you, inspire you to go back and do the, do the reading and the research for yourself. And then you, next time you'll go, oh yeah, I remember that. Right? But you remember, perhaps, in the book of Ezekiel, where God said to the nation, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. And therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. You see, there was all this sin, all this transgression taking place in the nation. And God wanted to hold off his wrath. He wanted to find a means by which he could be merciful but he couldn't find anyone, not so much as a single righteous individual who would pray and intercede on their behalf. Question, can prayer make a difference? Absolutely it can. But here God says, when I came, there was no man. When I called, there was none to answer. And again, the idea here is don't blame me for the mess that you got yourself into. For your iniquities, you have sold yourselves. And for your transgressions, your mother has been put away. Now look at the last half of of verse 2. You might underline it. He says, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. What's rhetorical mean? means the answer is implied by the way the question is phrased, right? And so he says, or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there's no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Now, Judah was going to be carried off into captivity, but not because of God's weakness. Like He's like, if I got no power that I, I can't save, is that the problem here? He says, no, look, I, there's plenty of power where I come from. Where I am, who I am, the, power, the problem's not with me. It's not my weakness, it's your sinfulness. God reminds them he has plenty of power. With my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. He's pointing most probably to this Red Sea crossing, right? Looking back, perhaps the Jordan River, uh, the children of Israel's crossing, or with some of this idea with the rivers and the fish dying and stinking and all of this, he could even be going further back into the days of deliverance with Moses when, you remember the Nile River was turned to blood and all the fish died and the stink was filling the land and and all of that. But the point here is, let's not blame 
some insufficiency in God as if it's his fault when we're where we are as the result of our own sin. Does this make sense to you? He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. The picture here is that heaven is, is mourning because of the sin, the unbelief and rebellion. Listen to this in the hearts of God's people. Now, in contrast, as we press on into the chapter here, we see the steadfast obedience and submission of the servant of the Lord. So we have the the rebellion of the people of God in contrast or comparison to the submission of the servant of God or the servant of the Lord. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember we discovered the servant of the Lord that's coming into focus for us increasingly over these next chapters is God's son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so with that, let's turn our attention to verse four. And this would be, Uh, prophetically, the Lord speaking, Jesus Christ, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious nor Did I turn away? We'll stop right there. Now, we began learning of the Messiah's mission last week. Here, more details begin to come to light. And as to where Israel and Judah were consistently rebellious before God, obstinate and stiff-necked, this servant, again, his Son, God's son, would be submissive on every level. He, I want you to note it. You can jot it down in the margin of your Bible. You can, you know, I don't know, commit it to memory, whatever, but make mental note. He would submit his mind to God. And in so doing, he would learn the word and the will of God. You've seen it there in verse 4. He has given me the tongue of the learned, or the idea behind the word learned is the tongue of the learner. You understand what I'm saying? Um, Meaning Jesus had the mindset of a disciple. He was always learning. You know, people wonder what Jesus was doing throughout what we might refer to as the quiet years. You know, those years before his ministry really began, really took flight, really went public. Uh, Was he a carpenter? Yes. But he was also a disciple. He was a student of the word of God. Maybe you remember when they went to the temple when he was about 12 years old, he was found even then challenging and questioning and blowing the minds of the teachers in the temple because he was such an astute student already as a young child. And by way of quick application, 
if the Son of God saw it as a non-negotiable necessity to study the Word of God, come on somebody, how much more should you and I make a habit of having it open before our eyes? Do you understand what I'm saying? As Paul told Timothy, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. A, here's our word, worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of, what's the word? It's truth. To learn God's word, hear me on this, to learn God's word, it takes diligent work. Now, of course, your knowledge will increase by simply reading it, which is a must for the child of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by some of the words. Is that what Jesus said? Is that what the, the, the scriptures say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by... That was a solid 23% of you that, that knew that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Guys, if you really want to be a learner, it's not going to happen by chance. You will have to be, you know, and we talk about this, we laugh kind of at this sometimes. We think, you know, in our minds, we want it to be like this, don't we? We want to we want to go to bed at night and say, oh God, would you help me be a, a, a better disciple, have a greater knowledge of your word? And then while we sleep, it's like some spiritual magic pixie dust sprinkles over us. And we wake up in the morning and man, we're, we're closer to God. We, we have a greater understanding. We're more spiritual than when we went to bed. Ladies and gentlemen, it does not work that way. You will have to be intentional in your efforts. Jesus took the time to study God's word. He awakens me morning by morning. Here's our word again, to hear as the learned, as a student. He spent time in prayer, in meditation, in contemplation of the scriptures. But that's what he did, right? That's what he did. Why did he do it? Guys, what's the why behind the what? That's what we're always looking for. He tells us right here, it's again in verse 4, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. If we know the word of God, we can administer the right word at just the right time. Time. And listen to me, nothing hits more effectively than the right word from the word at just the right time. And so we study the scriptures and we learn how to love and how to encourage and how to rightly relate to others. We read in 1 Timothy, now the purpose of, what is the purpose of the word? So the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from sincere faith. That sincere means genuine, right? It means without 
wax. There's nothing false. There's nothing fake about it. This without wax, it means that in the ancient world, how many of you are familiar with how many, how many, you, you look at a museum, you go to Greece today or whatever the case, you see ruins of, of sculptures and statues all over the place, right? They were big into sculpture. But sometimes that marble, like here's, let, let's pretend you're a sculptor. And I don't know because I'm not. But how long do you reckon it would take to sculpt out of marble, the physique of a man in some what you would consider to be ideal or perfect form. I mean, I I think that would take a fat minute, especially with the tool set of perhaps the ancient world. They may be more refined than what we know, but I mean, there you are. I mean, it's going to take you a minute. And let's say there you are on the last day, you're you're putting on just a touching, you've you've done all the hard work, you've done the kind of the, what, what we might say, the the primary like chipping away, but there's like little edges that are still. And so you've got like your fine tool out and you're just, you're kind of chipping away. You're getting it right. And and you're up there around the bridge of the nose and you go, and the nose goes and it pops off. And you're like, oh my gosh, I have spent months working on this one sculpture. Now I can't sell it. Now it's not worth anything. Now I got, so what they would do is they would take wax And they would take all the powder of the marble that had fallen to the wayside and they would mix the wax and the powder and it would look like marble and then they would shape it and fashion it and put it on the statue and then they would sell it to some unsuspecting buyer. But when it got hot outside, (laughs) the buyer would suddenly realize this guy's work is insincere. It's not genuine. And so when he starts talking about sincere faith, the idea is without wax, it's the real deal through and through. Uh, Maybe that's a word for someone here today. His mind was submitted to God. He was a learner of the will the word of God, his, his will was submitted to God. Look at verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear and, underline it, I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Now, we spoke about this last week. What does this opening of the ear mean? It's found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. It looks back to a custom in ancient Israel where a servant willingly became a bond slave to his master for life out of love for his master. And so the sign of the willing servant was a pierced ear. His ear was opened with an awl against a door or a post. And there's a whole legal process that they would go through, but ultimately they would take him to the judges. They would put, he, would, he would confess his love for his master. He'd do this willingly, wants to serve him for the rest of his life, you see. And so they would take an ear and they would essentially punch it through his ear. They would pierce his ear. And now he's a bond slave for life out of love for his master. And so the reference here is that the Messiah willingly submitting himself to God the Father out of his great love for God the Father, even though it would mean he would be subjected to things that he himself did not like. Now, someone needs to hear that. 
He says, I was not rebellious. Listen, you know that submission isn't submission unless you're faced with something you don't want to do or don't like to do, right? Rebellion is when I refuse to do something that someone over me requests or requires of me. And I say, no, I won't do it. For whatever reason, right, that I deem justifiable within myself, if, I'm, if I always love what I'm asked to do, then I'm not submitting to anything. It's when I'm presented with a path that I would prefer to avoid that I choose. Submission or rebellion. Jesus chose submission. Leave your finger in the book of Isaiah, but turn with me quickly to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I don't know. Uh, Give me an amen when you're there. Wow. Four of you have made it. All right. Let's go. Let's go. Anyone else? <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, I got a fish now. Where is it? Philippians. I got Galatians. Where's John? That's my auctioneers. I got a chapter now. Who give me a book? I try not to speak quickly. I know I can. Uh, and I sometimes get in that mode. Every now and then I'll remind you my great grandfather before he passed, he said, You know, you'd make a great auctioneer. Okay. <laughs> Philippians chapter Philippians chapter two. That's the slow down version. You're like, would you get on with it? Yes. Philippians chapter two, look at verse three. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Underline that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is the mind of Christ? Well, it's found there in verse 3. Let nothing be done. So the idea is doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, esteeming others better than yourself. Now listen to me. That doesn't mean that others are better than yourself. We know that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, uh, you know, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, black, white, male, female, we're all one in Christ, but we're giving them willingly the preferred place. Looking out not for your own interest. By the way, if you're in Philippians and you happen to have a pen with you, would you take the word in verse um, 4 and scratch out the word only? Because it's not there in, in the Greek. 
The idea is looking out not only for your own interests, which makes you think, well, it's okay to look out for myself, my own interests, so long as I'm helping others too. That's not what Paul said. A more literal rendering would be each one looking out not for the things of himself, but for the things of others. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. And so looking out not for your own interests, but the interest, the benefit of others. Now, how did that look in the life of Christ? Well, let's look on in verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Here it is. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We'll stop right there. So he submitted his life to God to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Listen to me. Job articulated a beautiful principle when he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job had such complete trust in the goodness of God That even if it cost him his life, he would continue to be faithful to him. Job said that. Jesus did that. Uh, He submitted his will, even though it meant tremendous suffering leading even to death. And guys, this is another thing that some people really struggle with and some have doctrines against, that it could ever be the will of God that you and me, that we would suffer. But listen to me, you have to turn a blind eye to Scripture to come to that conclusion. Now, I understand that we don't like to hear it, but God will teach us He will refine us. He will purify us. Listen, He will help us release our grip on this world and set our hearts on heaven through suffering. If Jesus suffered according to the will of God, how is it then that we think that we should only sail smooth seas? Peter put it plainly when he said, therefore, let those who suffer. Wait a minute. What's that say? Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. God will call us to submission even in incredibly difficult, sometimes painful circumstances. You're back in the book of Isaiah Look at verse 6. He says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. 
For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. I love that. And I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Listen, I trust that what I'm about to tell you has already been made plain to you all, but the submission of Jesus wasn't some non-tangible, ethereal, a kind of theoretical principle. He submitted in every aspect of his being. It wasn't just an inward kind of mental ascent, like, yeah, I submit to God and this and that. No, submission cost him dearly physically. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And as we progress through Isaiah, we will note with what chilling detail these prophecies expose the great sufferings of the Messiah. Guys, Jesus was beaten on the face. Now we know he was scourged. We'll see that again in a few chapters. Struck on the back, beaten with a rod, and uh, spat upon. And guys, I'm not sure that there is a greater disgrace agreed upon by the entire human race that you could do to someone other than spit in their face. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't worse things you could do, but there's something about spit that we universally agree upon. And to spit in someone's face is completely degrading. He says, I gave. And guys, I want you to note, underline, highlight, circle, whatever the case may be, this word gave. It's important. I gave my back to those who struck. He didn't have to. There was, it wasn't as though there was no choice, like they had him and he couldn't get away or something. No, he chose to endure it out of his great love for you and for me. And in ancient Israel, the beard of a man was like his dignity. Uh, Not only would it be incredibly painful to have chunks of your beard torn from your face, but beyond that was the intentional public embarrassment and humiliation. You might just jot it down and you can research it for a little bit deeper insight on your own. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 10. But he made himself of no reputation. In other words, he wasn't seeking to safeguard his dignity, but he suffered openly, shamefully, voluntarily, that we might be saved. But again, we note his unshakable 
confidence in the Father. The Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Speaking of this ultimate vindication in the resurrection and the exaltation that would follow. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, pointing to the resolute determination of Christ to do the Father's will. Perhaps you recall, there they were, Peter trying to talk our Lord out of why it was that he had come to us. Jesus in his ministry as it was winding down, wrapping up as far as his time on the earth would be concerned. He came to a place where he was becoming more and more cognizant of the cross. Meaning that it was, it was finding its place more and more in the forefront of his mind. It was coming into focus for him. And as a result, he would speak of it more and more to his disciples. How he would go to Jerusalem. And he would suffer. And he would be killed. And on the third day, he would rise again. And we read that then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? you imagine rebuking Jesus Christ? But he said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not, here's our word, mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Do you remember the mind that was in Christ Jesus? Nothing of selfish ambition or conceit. Save yourself. Save yourself. That's the mind of Satan. That's the mind of men. Give yourself for the benefit of others. That's the mind of Christ. Again, guys, I know I'm giving you lots of homework. Look, call it extra credit. Write it down and read it later. It's in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Nothing was going to turn our Lord away from fulfilling the Father's will. And may God help us to have that same resolve, that unrelenting trust in the goodness of God, come what may, and an unshakable determination to be about our Father's work, to finish the work He's given us to do. Not a passive resignation to fate, but a confident assurance knowing that God will help us. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. I will not be ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And I'm telling you, if you love someone, you're going to share the gospel with that one. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Verse 10, guys, we're circling the runway now. We're getting ready to land the plane, okay? Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of His servant? And who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, 
All you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Wow. Well, verse 10 is sort of reminiscent of what I was speaking to you about last week. We spoke of John the Baptist. Remember those anchor points I talked to you about? Uh, where else are we going to go? And, of course, Jesus speaking to John the Baptist of, you know, blessed is the one who, who isn't offended because of me and all of that. John the Baptist was in jail. He wasn't really understanding what was going on. And Jesus was encouraging him to trust in him, even though he didn't understand uh, what or why he was going through the tough times he was being subjected to. Now, John the Baptist feared God. He feared the Lord. He, he, he obeyed the Lord, but he was like what we read in verse 10. He was walking in darkness. Uh, he had no light. What that means is that he didn't know the why behind the what was happening to him. But the exhortation remains, even if you have no light, you feel like you're in the dark. Trust in the Lord. Rely upon your God. Listen to me, guys. Don't tune out on me. Faith will cause us to trust in the Lord even when we can't see how it's going to work out. We're in the dark on this one. It's been said, never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. The alternative is verse 11 to create your own light, to walk in the light of your own making. Guys, this is not a positive thing. Verse 11 is not a positive thing. Think of the profane fires of Nadab and Abihu, Abihu, Abihu? Yeah, look it up. It's Leviticus chapter 10. But the idea here is to trust in the name of the Lord rather than your own efforts before God. That's like profane fire, kind of making your own way, doing your own thing. Let me put it another way. You can trust in God's word, or you can trust in your own ways. It's one or the other. And better to be in the dark, trusting God, than to walk in the short-lived light of your own understanding. Now, we're going to close. Are you like, out? Yeah, okay. Listen, God's word. What does the Bible say? Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Jesus is the light of the world. Trust in him. Uh, trust in his word. Don't live your life by your own rules. What you think. Well, you know, I think, I'm going to tell you something, it doesn't matter what you think. And it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is, what does God's word say? To live according to your own light is to be lost. To lie down in torment. This means what you think it means. It's speaking of being lost eternally. God gives fair warning. Fear the Lord. Obey His voice. Trust in the Lord and rely upon God. He's what He's saying at all costs. 
at every turn. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what you understand. Trust in the Lord. For He is good. It's not all together different from what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I'm going to close with this. God says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. You have a choice. Listen to me. You have a choice. But here's the heart of God. He says, choose life. That you may live. Both you and your descendants may live. That you may love the Lord your God. That you may obey His voice. And that you may cling to Him. For He is your life and the length of your days. Father, would you increase our faith? That we obey your voice and cling to you. For you are our life. In the length of our days, Lord. You hold our breath in your hands. Lord, cleanse us on the inside. Renew that first love relationship that we had with you. God, I pray you pour your spirit out fresh that you be glorified in our lives. And Lord, help us to have that servant's submissive heart toward you. And we'll give you praise. And guys, while we're here with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, our hearts humbled before the Lord, I'm encouraging you to come into the light of Jesus Christ. Because the only other alternative is to seek to walk in the light of your own self-sufficiency. But God has set before you life and death. Choose life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so while we're here in this moment, if the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart, and the choice is set before you, life or death, God's way or your way, Jesus is God's way. Well, I'm just encouraging you. I'm exhorting you as though God were pleading through me. Be reconciled to Christ. You don't have to understand it all. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved.